That is a great testimony. That's the testimony of live big people who always are making those right choices. Today I choose to follow Christ. Today I choose to say yes to Him. I hope that's uh, the orientation of your life because uh, that's the abundant life. That's what live big life is all about. Saying yes to Jesus, no to myself, choosing to follow Him. Well, we have uh, endeavored in 2009, as we start 2009, to provide for you tools in your Live Big toolbox. And, and just by way of recap, we've had, uh, we understand that Live Big People, our, our proposal number one, Live Big People, are rich. Rich in God. Contentment in God. Faith in God. And good works in His name. Uh, filled with good deeds. We've discovered, secondly, that that live big people treasure Christ above all things. He is our treasure. We, we've discovered in, in proposal number three that live big people emphasize the priorities of the homeland in their life. Holiness and, and light and life. Well, today I want to take you on another journey in the, in the live big and provide another tool in your toolbox. And I hope that you are using these tools. They aren't just for intellectual stimulation, but these are for application in your life. Uh, Live big people don't play it safe. That's what we want to look at today. Live big isn't playing it safe. Uh, I I think you'll agree with me if you watch the TV, you look at the landscape around you, you pay attention to your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers, that safe is a big deal in people's lives. Security, safety, insurance. In fact, there's a huge industry Billion dollars of industry on making sure that we're safe, making sure that we at least feel safe, and, and minimizing the risks in our lives. On, on any given summer Saturday afternoon, you, you can look out on your sidewalk and see a bunch of little kids riding tricycles with great gazoo helmets on and, and, and gigantic elbow pads and knee pads for fear the little tykes might tip over on their little three-wheeler and bang their little heads. I I don't know what this generation is coming to. When I grew up, we didn't have big gazoo helmets for riding tricycles. We climbed up in trees and jumped off and and saw how high we could go until we hurt ourselves. That's a kind of... Okay, so we were stupid, but we weren't safe. But but this is a... The era we live in is, is fixated and focused on safe. In fact, I bet you if you do an inventory of your prayer life, A huge amount of it is, oh Lord, keep me safe. Oh Lord, keep my kids safe. Oh Lord, help my family to be safe. I'll tell you what, I prayed in the first service this morning and I didn't ask the Lord to keep anybody safe this morning. I just said, help them come to church. Hence, maybe I should have prayed that they would be... But anyway, uh, our our prayer lives are are filled with with keep us safe. And I want to tell you that I believe wholeheartedly that live big people don't play it safe. And I say that because I I think Jesus summarized it so well in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. You might want to turn in your Bibles there. Jesus said this. Here's Jesus' word on the issue of safe. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And what he means there is to keep it safe and tidy for himself or herself... It literally will ruin it, okay? Can I say that to you again? Jesus is saying here, for whoever wants to keep their life safe and tidy and for themselves will ruin it. 
But whoever loses his or her life for me will find it. Or, in other words, whoever turns her back on herself, turns his back on himself, so he or she is free to follow Christ, will find it. Will find, live big. That's Jesus' word on the issue of safe. And by the way, in context here, Jesus has just told his disciples that his life trajectory is about to take on a turn of suffering and he will be killed. And Peter turns to Jesus and says, No, Jesus, no, Lord, play it safe. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, that's man's thing. Playing it safe? You don't have on your mind the things of God. God's thing is to turn your back on yourself and follow hard after God wherever He leads. The Father is leading me to suffering and to die on the cross and to be raised again. That's God's trajectory for me. You may not believe me in what I just said, but verse 22 of Matthew 16, Peter says, takes him aside and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Play it safe. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must get behind me. He must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world or worldly success, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus makes it very clear here that God's thing is that people would get behind Jesus and follow him wherever he takes you. Which requires of you having literally a throwaway life attitude to do this. Now, I'm not talking here about being reckless. I'm talking here about following Christ. I'm not talking about playing it safe. I'm talking about following Christ. I'm talking to you about the words that Jesus has said to you that you must turn your back on your life that you might be freed to follow hard after Christ. To get behind Christ and follow Him. He's going somewhere and He's taking you somewhere with Him. Live big people. Don't play it safe. They follow hard after Christ. And by the way, Jesus sets up two options. Only two. You will either lose your life or you will find it. That's it. If you play it safe, you will lose your life. If you follow hard after Christ, you will find your life. Well, I want to take you on a journey this morning into, the story, into a story into the Old Testament on this whole concept of play it safe. It's probably one that you're very familiar with. It's the time where the spies were given the mandate by God to go in and, and, and scope out the land that God was about to give them. So if you wouldn't mind, turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. And we want to uh, see this concept of play it safe uh, lived out in uh, flesh, put on the bones of this. So the question this morning is to live big or play it safe. Are we going to live big or are we going to play it safe? Numbers chapter 13 
And we're going to start reading at verse 1. Now, by the way, let me set a context for you here. God has rescued uh, Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. We're probably two months into this adventure. He has fast-tracked them from Egypt to the very edge of the promised land. Now, uh, scholars will tell us that that on foot is basically an 11-day journey. But it has, to this point, taken two months. Because God had some other things he wanted to accomplish, like the Ten Commandments and a few important things like that, that, that sort of delayed the, uh, the opportunity to get to the edge of the Promised Land. But here they are, standing on the very edge of the Promised Land. The Exodus outcome is, is within their grasp. They are being rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and they are going to be taken into this free country uh, that will be the headquarters of the Kingdom of God. We pick up the story at Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. For each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. Someday when you have some time, read them yourself. Now, verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land... It was the season for the first ripe grapes, or late July. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eskel, They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them. You get in the picture of the size of this cluster? Uh, Along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskal because Eskal means cluster. Because of the cluster of grapes. So it's the Valley of Cluster. Uh, because of the grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now, now they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kedesh, in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Our Father and our God, I ask this morning that you will focus our hearts on this message that you have for us. We recognize the flaw in our life is our our propensity to be people who want to play it safe. We're, we're afraid. We're scared people. We're, um, 
timid. We lack courage. We long for the familiar. And our Father, each of us here have uh, no doubt a different um, area in our life that we are reticent to give away to you, that we like to play it safe and keep it tidy and protect it. So, Father, I pray as we preach this morning your word that the Holy Spirit of God will laser in on each individual heart and convince and convict us of the area of our life that we are living small. You have called us to live abundantly, to live big. We have an immense and a great and a grand God pray, Father, today that you might teach us how our lives need to reflect that, to live big before a big God who has big plans. And we pray, Father, that you would um, give us great courage and teach us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as they're standing here on the threshold, on the very edge of the promised land, They are about to seize defeat from the jaws of victory. It is sitting there waiting for them. And I want to tell you that the first first reality in the whole live big scenario is this. Victory, or the God-filled life, requires moving beyond where you presently are. It is absolutely imperative that you understand that the movement here is a physical movement of taking people from their slavery in the land of Egypt, and rescuing them and freeing them and releasing them and taking them into the promised land that they might live free and trust Christ, trust in God, and serve Him. Now that's the physical movement of this story. It's the same picture as the movement that God is is manufacturing in our own hearts. He has rescued us from the bondage of sin and slavery to ourselves and our sinfulness. And he's rescuing us and putting us into his marvelous kingdom of light that we might live freely before him and follow hard after Jesus Christ. There's movement involved in this. That's why we use the terminology like follow Christ. Why Christ himself, the scriptures himself say, follow Christ. There is a movement of this rescue from slavery, from our former slavery, to our complete freedom in Christ. He who has been set free by Christ is free indeed. That's what abundant life is all about. And so I can tell you that victory, having this God-filled life, living big, living abundantly, living the Spirit-filled life, requires following hard after Christ and turning my back on the things that used to attract me and moving forward focused on Christ. You can't sit still where you are and have victory. You you can't say, I'm going to hold on to what I have. I'm just going to hold on for dear life. I've come so far and I'm I'm not prepared to risk going any farther. That's not this God-filled life. That's not the Spirit-filled life. That's not the live big life. And so God has this, this picture of movement in mind. And he says to the, to the people, uh, I want you to send some men. And I want you, them to go in and I want them to explore the good things that I'm going to give to them. And I want them to have it. This is a, a land which I'm going to give to them. God wants us to have this victorious, freed life. 
And that's what salvation is all about. And so the men go into this land and they say to, in terms of the report, by the way, it's true. We've seen the land. It is free flowing with milk and honey. And there's an exclamation mark in my Bible. They're all excited about what they have seen with their eyes. Yes, what God said to us is there. The blessings that God is promising to us, yes, they are there. So why didn't they go in? Why did they send a bad report? Why did they shrink back? Why were they, did they lack courage? Why did they become timid and scared and want to play it safe? Well, well, when they were looking there, if you listen to some of the descriptions, they started talking about the size of the people that they saw in the land and, and all kinds of different things like that. They, they started to realize that, that God wasn't just going to give us this thing on a bed of roses. There was going to be some struggle. There was going to be some inconvenience. There was going to be some discomfort. It's going to be uncomfortable. It is not, we are not unfamiliar. There are, there are cravings that we used to have in Egypt. They talk here in chapter 14 about, in verse 4, saying we ought to go back and choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Because we're missing the luxuries of our slavery in Egypt. It might get chaotic at times. Now let me give you a principle that that will explain the struggle of your life. Freedom from slavery is hard for people who are still slaves in their heart. And that's the problem with these people. They still, they had the, they were able to come out of, uh, come out of slavery physically, but their hearts were still craving the things that they had left behind. And the spirit-filled life requires of us that we, when Jesus says you need, to, you need to lose your life, you can't keep this tidy collection of things that you want to keep from your past that will cost you focus on Christ and have Christ too. Jesus says you've got to say goodbye to all of that stuff and move on no longer having any ties to your former slavery to sin and to self, so that you might be freed up to do whatever God asks you to do without thinking, wait a second, what about Egypt? We're leaving some things behind. The reason that people crave in their hearts slavery is because slavery is easy, it's predictable, it's familiar. You don't fight the obstacles, you just succumb to them. And people are continually battling sinfulness in their lives, even though they've been rescued from the slave market to sin and have been moved into the kingdom of Christ's light that they might be free... They continue to wrestle with sinfulness because they are still slaves at heart. We were all formerly slaves. All of us. We were all dead in our trespasses and transgressions and sins. And we all had cravings of the flesh. We all had sinful patterns in our lives. We all preferred the desires of our physical life. 
But God is rescuing us from that and, and inviting us to embrace what the Spirit of God has for us to be freed from all of that so that we can actually say, today, I choose to say yes to Christ. I don't have baggage. I don't have strings. I don't have things tugging on my heart. The only treasure of my heart is Christ and pleasing Him. That's what live big people do. There will be obstacles in the land of light. But God is going to enable you to, to crush those obstacles that you formally succumbed to. Which was so easy to do. And so ten of the twelve spies have heart ties to slavery. Instead of freedom to follow hard after God. People seek the familiar even if it isn't good. I mean, come on. How good could slavery of Egypt have been? We've read the scriptures. They were making bricks now without straw. Their taskmasters were hard on them. It was a horrible existence. Your former life, uh, you may have some, some fond memories of, 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 of sinful times. But come on, when you really know about it and think about it, what do you want to go back to? God offers life, slavery, or freedom. You choose. Choose this day who you will follow. I want to say to you that play it safe people, live small people, have some common problems or common characteristics. And first of all, they... They seek to hold on to what they have, which is really conformity to this world. God wants to take you from being conformed to this world that you might be transformed into the image of Christ. The, the wording there in, in Romans chapter 12 is, is where it says, be not conformed, literally says, stop being conformed. Stop the movement towards conforming to the things of this world. Fixation on physical safety and be transformed by the renewing of your mind and trusting and keeping your sights on a gigantic, immense, awesome God. That's the transformation journey that the Spirit of God is taking you on. Live small people want to stay where they are. But secondly, they arbitrarily define what they believe is safe. I mean, honestly, are any of us capable of knowing what safe really is? I mean, in comparison to God, who you have, if you have given your life to Christ... You have declared by doing that that you believe that God can do a better job of running your life than you were doing. So why then all of a sudden do we think we've become rocket scientists in the area of safety and what's safe? That that I know better than God. These ten spies are lined up at the edge of the promised land saying, hey, sorry. We know better than God. You know what God wants to do? If you read verse 3 of chapter 14, he wants to take us in there and kill us. That's what God wants to do. We know better than God what is safe. I'll tell you what safe is. Safe is to go back to Egypt and live among the world and and try and gain success there. Really? You really believe that? You think of the immensity of your God, the, the, the one who called the heavens and earth into existence? 
I'll tell you, I want to give you a few characteristics of play it safe people in, in addition to what I've just shared with you. They, they, they want the fruit, but not the fight. Did you catch that with the guys? They show up, you know, all loaded up with a cluster of grapes and pomegranates and figs. And like, they're like all excited about the fruit. Hey, look at the blessings, guys. Isn't this amazing what we got? It's, look at this spectacular stuff. But we're not going in there and working hard for it. We just want it to be handed to us. Uh, people in this uh, Christian journey, they want to be pampered. God wants to perfect us. There's a huge difference between the two. In fact, if we're in, in trying to understand why God... You ever, you ever wondered, like, why does God make the Christian journey so hard? Like, why didn't he just take them from Egypt and sort of, like, like um, put the transporter on and, and beam them out of Egypt and, and zzz, beam them over to the promised land, having cleared out all of the enemies? Why wouldn't God just do that? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Why does God make the Christian journey such a struggle? Why do we read in the scriptures all over the place that, that you've got to fight the good fight of faith? Why is it such a battle? Well, Pastor uh, James, uh, to his congregation in Jerusalem, back around 2,000 years ago or so, said, um, I want to tell you something about this whole deal in the Christian life. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I can just think people in the congregation say, wait a second, stop right there. You're telling us to consider it all joy when we have all of these hassles in life? As Pastor Dwayne was talking about the sunshine and the snowstorm. You want us to be joyful about the snowstorm? Well, he says, just a second, I, I, got, a, I got a word from God here, I want to tell you. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you go from slavery which was easy and predictable to the kingdom of God in one fell swoop, which is easy and predictable, you will still be slaves at heart to your former life. God, by these trials and tests and struggles, is weaning us from our ties to our sinfulness and ourselves, and our past. This struggle for the promised land was going to teach them each act of faith that they could trust in God, that it would be better for them to turn their backs on themselves and their past and trust fully in God and go where he wanted to take them. He was in the, they were going into the classroom with God. And so it is with our lives. We want the fruit but we don't want the fight. God is getting the live small defeat of slavery of sin out of your life. That's what he's doing. Because slavery to sin moves us to play it safe lives. lives. Now, by the way, there were some defiant rebels that had to be removed from that land. And God had predicted this hundreds of years before. He had told Moses. He had named these very tribes. What was coming out of their lips, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and read, God had already told Abraham, their father, their forefather, the very names of the people groups that they were going to rout out when his anger became full. There were some rebels that he was going to root out of the land, and he was going to use God's people to do it. 
So this was not a surprise or a shock. Oh, the Amalekites are in there. Oh, the, the Canaanites are in there. Gasp, the Hittites, the Jebusites. Who's ever heard of all of these people? They'd been tracking the knowledge of these people all along with God. Francis Chan, in his book entitled Crazy Love, says, People who are obsessed with Jesus aren't consumed with their personal safety and comfort above all else. Obsessed people care more about God's kingdom coming to this earth than their own lives being shielded from pain and distress. What about you? And by the way, while you're looking at your scriptures here, they they talk about how the fruit was great, but we're not so into the fight. And they start to, to deliberately distort the data that they're sharing with the people who weren't there. And notice what they say here. In verse 29, they talk about the Amalekites live in Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, by the way, these guys were only 40 days into the the promised land. They were tooling around the uh, hill country of Hebron, mostly. They didn't get out to the Mediterranean, nor did they get to the Jordan River. They had no idea what they were talking about. But they were starting to give the impression that this land was teeming with trouble. We've seen from coast to coast, there's nothing but trouble here. And they were discouraging the people by their deliberate distortion of the data that was there. How many times have people come into your life and they just bring a bad report? You know, you want to risk something for God and... And they show up and say, oh, people are saying that's a really bad idea. And you're like, who? They give you the impression that it's just teeming with advice. Like, the whole church is telling you. And, and they tell, well, 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 who? Well, you know, Elroy. And Elroy's the lunatic that nobody ever listens to, right? But suddenly, he's the person everybody's listening to. And so it is here. They, they bring this bad report because they want the fruit. But not the fight. Hey, the walk of faith is not a Sunday stroll. If you want safe, go and join St. John's Ambulance or something. But, but don't be a Christian. Because that's not the deal here. The, the, the walk of faith is a, is a, is a, a tough walk. It's, there, there'll be a mess. There'll be, sometimes it'll be chaotic. Sometimes it'll be trouble. Uh, live small people have a form of godliness but deny its power. Look at verse 31. The men who had gone up with him said... We can't, in other words, up with Caleb, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Now, wait a second. Am I right in assuming that this is God's people? The, that the Lord, their Lord is the God who called the universe into existence, the maker of heaven and earth? Am I right in reminding all of you and reminding myself that that they are standing there. Can you, can, are they listening to what they are saying? What they are saying is these people in the land who have no great powerful God are stronger than the people who have the great powerful God of the universe who called the whole heavens and earth into existence and gives the people in that land every breath that they ever breathe. Someone needed to stand up. Well, he does. We'll talk about him in a Someone needed to stand up and say, are you listening to yourselves? Live big people. We'll fight against that. Can't? 
we, the people of God, can't do something? Is there anything too hard for God? Now, um, God sort of uh, lays into them a little bit later in chapter 14 and says, um, just how many more miracles do I have to show to you before you will trust me? That, that little deal I did with the tw- ten plagues that, 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 that got you out of Egypt in the first place. Any of you remember that? Any of you notice that? That, that little thing I did with the uh, Red Sea where I pushed the walls back and you guys walked through it and, and we drowned all the Egypt's, Egyptians on the way through. Anybody remember that kind of thing? Do you remember following me, the fire and the cloud? You, you, you guys remember any of that stuff? Do you remember me feeding you the food, the quails and stuff in the wilderness? Do you remember the water coming out of the rock? Like how many more miracles do you need to see before God's people will stop being enslaved in their past and freely following the living God? But the majority were lived small. Had a form of godliness, but denied the power. What more do they need to live big? Well, I'll tell you one major problem here. Do you notice these guys were leaders? Anybody notice that? Twice it's mentioned early in the chapter. Go pick some leaders. The guys who went in to spy out the land were choice men from their tribes. These are the... These are the best that they could produce. I'll tell you what, folks. When um, your leaders are living small, it's a bad, bad thing. Because these guys were discouragers and underminers of the faith of others under the heading risk management. Risk management is just a synonym for play it safe. I don't think um, God is calling us to risk management. The, the, the odds are overwhelming. The obstacles are stacked against us. The, these guys say, we, you know, um, uh, the people there, um, one, as one commentator puts it, they are human sauruses. And we are just grasshoppers. They're, they're gigantic. And we, uh, we appear as little bugs to them. Make sure your leaders are followers of Christ. Make sure your leaders are yes, we can people. Is that, was that Obama's slogan? Yes, we can? It's a good slogan. Yes, we can. By the way, the we includes God. Or we can't. That's the difference. They were standing there saying, no, we can't. You know why? Because they were just looking at each other. And when we just look at each other, it's true. We can't. But when you add God, it's always we can. It's, it's always we can. It is yes, we can. We are a yes, we can people. This was God's idea. This was God's mission. This is what God wanted. By the way, playing it safe is just another way of describing rebellion, fear, treating God with contempt, refusing to believe. That's what God calls it anyway in chapter 14. In verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people. 
Down in verse 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt and refuse to believe in me? You know, they were accusing God of actually taking them out into the, into the promised land and killing them. How contemptuous is that? Imagine. I mean, think for a second if you were God. And all you have in mind, you've rescued this rebellious, stiff-necked, annoying people. Out of your loving kindness, you have taken them out of slavery, and you have mobilized them, and you have moved this massive group of people, and you're going to give them a promised land where you have to carry the cluster of grapes on, on a pole between two guys. And there's a bunch of guys who stand up, leaders over the people, and say, you know what God's plan is? God just wants to kill us. It got God, God kind of angry. And they put it in his mind that, yeah, you know what? I ought to kill these people. We aren't going to get into that. Moses intervenes for them. But playing it safe is simply another way of describing rebellion, fear, treating God with contempt, and refusing to believe in God. That's what it is. Playing it safe is refusing to believe in God. And make no mistake about this. Faith causes a person to be counted righteous. Its absence is their damnation. I want you to understand that we are not offering here some uh, uh, Tony Robbins, again, Tony Robbins speech on a higher self-living. You know, this is how you can defeat your bad habits and, and have good habits. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about life and death. This is, this is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Oh, that was a nice speech, Rick. This is standing on the edge of what God wants you to have. Will you take life? Will you choose life? Or will you choose death? Will you continue to go back to slavery, which was death? Or will you choose to follow hard after God, which is life? And incidentally, the purpose of the survey and the study, it was not to strategize a safe journey, but to be encouraged by the signs that God is truly in this. He wanted them to see the land. He wanted them to see that the blessings of the land were laid out before him, just as he promised, that there was going to be food and plentiful food for them. He wanted them to see that the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites were there, just as he had said in his word all along until they got there. He wanted them to go in and notice, yeah, it's tough, but God told us it would be tough. The, the, the things that we have to defeat, God told us would be there. Well, if he told us that they would be there and he's taking us there, surely he intends to help us defeat them. The survey. The leaders were to come back and say, we have seen what God wants for us and it is good. They were to come back and build up the faith of their people, to encourage the faith of their people. That's what leaders are all about. Leaders go on in front of the people and come back and give reports that God is good. Follow God. Trust God. He is worthy to be trusted. He can be trusted. Now let's go. It will fire up the people in their faith, not discourage people with, dis with distorted data. Give them reasons why we can't succeed. That was Christ's strategy. What did Christ do when he was on his way to the cross? He gazed at the prize and scorned or sneered at the shame. And unfortunately, too many Christians are sneering at the prize and gazing at the shame. We keep staring at our sin. We keep staring at ourselves. 
Instead of gazing at the prize of Christ and keeping our gaze fixed on Him and scorning and sneering at the sin and the shame behind us. Say, I want to go back there. There's nothing that draws me there. There's nothing that attracts me there. My attraction is this way. I apologize to this side of the room that I've, I've set up all day as, this, as the bad side, the scorn side, and, and this side is the life side. But my wife's over here. What can I do? <laughs> C.S. Lewis said it this way. God is not safe, but he is good. And the sooner you figure that out in your life, the sooner you incorporate that into your life, the better off you will be. Jesus is not just some harmless moralizer. Rather, as, as Brunner put it, rather, he is the Lion of Judah. This is, I, I, I want to stress again, this is not, oh, that's nice. Jesus is not um, tap, tapping you on the head and saying, nice try. He didn't tap the spies on the head and say, nice try, I know guys, it's really rough and, and, and you know, I know you've come from slavery in Egypt and you're, you're not up to the big fight and all of that and you know, I understand. No, he doesn't. He understands. He understands that our heart is still tied to slavery and we're not with him. I'll tell you, what the biggest risk in life is. The biggest risk in life is to reject God and his word. That's the biggest risk in life. In the Heidelberg Catechism, a question is asked, what is your only comfort in life? And this is the response. That I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what live big is. As Bruner puts it in his commentary, it is the man who is prepared to bet his life that there is a God who in the end finds life. The alternative to live big, by the way, isn't really live small. It isn't living at all. There's not several tiers in life. of We like to divide things up. And, and we talk about Christianity following hard after God and Christianity light and then lost people. There's no Christianity light. There is either following hard after Christ or there's lostness. That, that's the presentation of the scriptures. They don't, they don't present some sort of, uh, of middle ground that is acceptable to God. There's not a live small place. There's a not live at all place. There's a live big place or there's a not live at all place. How do I know that? In, in, in Numbers chapter 14, near the end of the chapter, the um, ten spies had said, the land devours the people. And so God says, well, if that's what you really believe, and if that's what you really want, then you will die. And the ten spies who gave the live small, live die report died of a plague right there. 
and the generation of people who are wailing and crying all night long and living small and thinking small and not trusting God, they wandered around for 40 years dying in the wilderness when they were on the edge of the promised land. So close to embracing the full life in God. When you seek to hold on to what you have, you result in losing what you could have had. But you know what? I want to end this thing on a high, high note because there's this guy called Caleb. I skipped him as we were going through the text. Caleb, verse 30. By the way, Caleb means dog. I I think of Dog the Bounty Hunter on TV. Ever seen that guy? I think of Caleb. He was probably like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Dog says, what are you guys talking about? We can do this thing if God is pleased with us. He'll give us this land. He'll go before us. What are we doing? I love Caleb the dog, the dog man. He's the guy who turns his back on his own life and surprise, he receives his life. Yes, we can. And, And God's commentary on dog, I love it. Verse 24 of 14, but because my servant dog has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to and his descendants to inherit. He's got a different spirit. What's that different spirit? It's a live big spirit. What's a live big spirit? A live big spirit is to follow after God wholeheartedly. He cut his ties from Egypt really fast. I don't want to go back there. Why would anybody want to go back there? God has offered me life and blessing The immensity of God. I can trust in him. He's already demonstrated we can trust him. Why would I go back to trusting in myself? Live big people. Choose the crosswalk. The crosswalk is the winning walk. Did you notice what God says? (laughs) Like, um, Caleb gets it. This deal is not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. There's a lot of obstacles in that land. It's going to be tough. God's never said it would be safe. He just simply said, I'm going to make sure I bring Caleb home. And that's what he promised. I'll take Caleb into that land, and I'll give it to him. And I'll give it as an inheritance to his children, because he's a live big guy. And in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb, who you'd think had every right to be jaded and frustrated that he had to trek around in the wilderness for 40 years with these annoying people. He comes into the promised land finally at 85 years of age. And he says to Joshua, dude, you remember God promised me that I could have the land that I stepped my feet on? And I went to Hebron. And Hebron is where the people of Anak are, the Anakites. And by the way, the Anakites are descendants of the Nephilim. And you know who the Nephilim were? The Nephilim were those giants of people who were terrorizing people at the time of Noah. You know what God did to the Nephilim at the time of Noah? He took them for a big swim. And they were no more. And Caleb, dog, is saying, I'm 85, I'm as strong as I was back then because I've got the Lord on my side and I want to have the land of Hebron. Give it to me. I'll take it. 
It's not going to be safe. It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be familiar. But it's what God wants me to do. And God is going to bring me home. The obstacles that you overcome by faith are breaking your addictions to yourself and your sin so that you will be able to trust God fully. That's the message of the play-it-safe life. It's not play-it-safe. It's by faith, trust God for every obstacle that he sets before you so that he can overcome your addictions to your sin and yourself, so that you will notice that trusting God is the victorious way, not trusting yourself. That's the message. So that you will never say to God anymore, yes, but. Don't ever use that three-letter word to God. No B-U-T. It's, yes, Lord. Father, we want to be live big people who absolutely are committed to wholeheartedly turning our back on our self and trying to keep it tidy and convenient and comfortable and safe so that we are free to say yes to the adventure that a big God has us on. I pray that we will take that adventure for Jesus' sake. Amen. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia series in the silver chair has an allegory of Jill, a little girl who meets God. It goes like this. Crying is all right in its way, in, in its way while it lasts, but you have to stop sooner or later. And then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She had been lying face downward, and now she sat up. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence except for one small, persistent sound, which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked round her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew... There might be several lions, but her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer around her at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream bright as glass running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. 
If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion, if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And, of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do it? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now... She realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion. And she had to. God is not safe, but he is good. Live big isn't playing it safe. It is ending it saved. Our Father... May we take this message from your heart. May the Spirit of God drill it deep into our heart. And may we apply it to whatever tie binds us to our sin and our self. And may we reject that and turn full wholeheartedly to Christ. That's playing it safe. In Jesus' name.